We are going to learn the Sechan Parshas Truma in Chelek Chof Aleph of Lekutei Sechas, the first Sechah in that Chelek. At the beginning of the Sechah, the Rebbe speaks about the name of the Parsha, which is Truma, and the Rebbe indicates that as we know, the names of the portions in the Torah are usually called by the first word in the Parsha, and being that it's a custom of the Jewish people to call the Parsha by this name, it's a part of Torah itself. And if this is the name that's chosen, obviously it's not only the first word in the Parsha, but it must express in some way the inner unique content of that particular Parsha. Particularly, if we think into the words of the Baal Shem Tov regarding all matters of our world in general, that the name that something has in Lashon HaKedosh, in the Holy Tongue, is really an expression of the highest, of the vitality of that thing that's called by that name and always alludes to its inner theme. In addition to this, the name of the Parsha is not only a way to single out the Parsha from all others, uh, and at the same time, knowing that it's called Truma, and it's not only because that is the beginning, and in truth, if this is the Parsha, and we are choosing it with the first word of the Parsha, we can't always say that it's the very first word, because quite often the first words of a Parsha are similar, like Vayomer, or we have Eila Toldos, or Eila HaMishpatim, or Vayomer Hashem. So we're choosing perhaps the word that's closest to the beginning of the Parsha. And if that is the case, really, our Parsha should not be called Truma, because before we have the word truma, it says the yikhu, that the Jewish people should take truma, should take a gift from their belongings and give it to Hashem. And that word the yikhu is certainly closer to the beginning of the parsha than the actual world truma. In other words, from here we understand it's not only that we call it truma because we want to indicate something unique about it and we want to distinguish it from other parshios. But in truth, if it's called truma, Certainly, this idea of truma, whatever it represents, indicates something special about this parsha, which we don't necessarily have in other parshios. However, we have to understand that, as far as we know, the parsha of truma speaks about the building of the Mishkan. That is primarily the theme of the entire parsha. And the word truma is not specifically connected to this parsha more to any others. We have the concept of truma all over the Torah in various places. There is more than one truma. Chazal tells us there were 10 trumos that Jews had to separate and lift up to Hashem. And in our parsha, it's only one kind of truma. The truma that the Jews are giving, the gift that the Jews are giving for the building of the Mishkan. And therefore, if we speak about truma, there's nothing unique about this parsha if it's its name. And the word truma most commonly is known as a portion that is set aside by the Jewish people as a gift to the Kohanim to work in the Beis Hamikdash. So how could we say that the word truma by which this parsha is called expresses the very special and unique theme of this particular parsha? Because we have the theme of truma in various places in the Torah and sometimes discussed with a much greater breadth and depth than the truma over here. In order to answer this question of why is this parsha called truma, the Rebbe is going to tell us 
what is the theme? We'll first understand what is the theme of this Parsha. And we know that the theme of this Parsha is about the work that was required, the things that were needed, and the labors that had to be done to build the Mishkan. And it's the building of the Mishkan that's the major theme. And anyone who knows the word truma, the word truma with its various shades of meaning is not at all related necessarily to the building of a Mishkan. Because the word truma indicates that the Jewish people were ready to separate from themselves something that belonged to them for the purpose of the Mishkan. But the word truma certainly does not indicate in any way anything that relates to the actual construction or building of the Mishkan, which the Pasuk tells us soon after the parsha begins, Va'asuli Mikdash, that the Jewish people should build for me, for Hashem, a sanctuary. So how could we say that the theme of the parsha, the building of the Mishkan, is manifest in the word truma? And the question gets even bigger, because if the parsha would open up with the theme Va'asuli Mikdash, if that would be the first pasuk, the first verse in the parsha, and that would be perhaps a foundation for the concentrated form of all the commands that are in this parsha, including the one to give truma, to take truma. And that, of course, enables us to make the mishkan. So again, as we said earlier, we should first have begun by saying that Hashem said, by Dabra Hashem, Hashem said to Moshe, let the Jewish people make for me a mikdash, a holy place, a sanctuary where I can dwell. And after that, we would have all kinds of commands regarding the fulfillment of this wish of Hashem and taking truma would be one of them. But that is not the essence of the parsha, it seems. But the fact that the Torah gives precedence to the command that the Jewish people should take truma from their own personal belongings before the Pesach even says that Hashem wants us to make a mikdash, we understand that obviously the word truma does indicate the main content, the main theme, the main idea of the Parsha, even more than the Pasuk, that they should make for me a Mikdash, because it does appear first. And as we know, in the beginning, we have the theme of the Parsha. Moreover, the Rebbe says, what is really the point of the Mishkan? The Mishkan is for the purpose that Hashem will dwell in it, as Hashem says, V'shachanti besocham, that He will dwell in it, and through it he will dwell in the heart of every Yid. So it's not so much the making of the Mishkan as the fact that that has value only when Hashem Shechina will dwell in it. And as long as we don't have the fulfillment of Hashem Shechina dwelling in this Mishkan, even when the structure is complete, this is not really a Mishkan. A Mishkan means something when Hashem can dwell in it. And the dwelling of the Shechina, of the Divine Presence in the Mishkan, can only happen when Hashem wants it to. And this we know from a, some words that were expressed by Shlaima HaMalach, by King Solomon, when the actual temple, the first base Hamikdash, was built. And Shlaima HaMalach says these words, He says to Hashem, the heavens and the ultimate inner heavens cannot sustain and support you. However, this Beis HaMikdash can. What does this mean? Shlaim HaMelech is saying, this is unbelievable. Hashem's Shechina is absolutely infinite. 
without any restrictions and limitations, and even the heavens and the heavens of the heavens, which incorporate all the supernal spiritual world, world, world cannot hold Hashem, cannot sustain Hashem. Hashem is too great. Yet Hashem decided that this Hashem, which is too great, would actually rest in the Beis Hamikdash. So the only thing that enables the Shechina to dwell in the Beis Hamikdash is really the will of Hashem, and not really what people do. And if the word Truma would actually come to, the word Truma actually comes to emphasize the opposite of this, because the word Truma is something that a person takes of his or her own volition and dedicates it to a special cause. So it's not about what Hashem does. When Hashem wants a Mishkan, and he is the only one who was able to accomplish that that Mishkan should be able to contain him in the kind of way that he wants to dwell in it. But when we speak about Truma, it's not about what Hashem is doing. It's not about anything other than the fact that the Jewish people are doing something. So let's try and understand this. Why do we even have a discussion in the Chumash about all the details of the building of the Mishkan? We know, of course, that the Mishkan was meant to be a temporary structure. It was supposed to accompany the Yidden in all the years, starting out in the Midbar and then appearing in different places until we actually merited to build the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. So the Beis HaMikdash was meant to be a temporary structure as the post-success, I will be present, I will be coming through the tent of the Mishkan. A tent is a temporary dwelling. It's not meant to remain for a very long time. It's something that's only momentary for a certain amount of time until we come to Eretz Yisrael, as we see actually in Chumash Devarim, when the Torah tells us of some of the laws that will apply when we finally will come into the land and we will settle the land and we will be comfortable in the land, then we will build the Beis Hamikdash in Yerushalayim. And that Beis Hamikdash is called Beis Olamim, according to the Rambam. Beis Olamim means it's a house forever. That was meant to be a permanent structure. So why is it so important for all the Jewish people, for all the future generations, to know all the details that went into the building of the Mishkan? In every period of history, we have to know all of these details, even after the Mishkan was hidden, at that lucky time when the Beis Hamikdash was finally built. So let's try to understand this. The laws of the building of the Beis Hamikdash, the permanent structure that was in Yerushalayim, that first Beis Hamikdash, and the second one that follow it, e- that followed it, even though they were both destroyed, it's imperative on the Jewish people to know about the Mikdash and to study about the Beis Hamikdash, because when Mashiach will come, the basic aspects of the Beis Hamikdash of the future are all based on the pattern of how the first and second Beis Hamikdash were built. So that is important to teach and to learn throughout our history. But why do we have to know now the details of the items that the Jewish people dedicated and the details of the items that were in the actual Mishkan and how it was made? 
That's a question we have to answer. And the question is even greater because regarding the Beis HaMikdash, reading, in the, reading about it in our books, in our holy books, learning the details of the building of the Beis HaMikdash are not only a preparation for the future Beis HaMikdash, that when Mashiach will come, we'll have to have, have maintained and kept this knowledge in order to know how to build it. But we learn something else. Our sages teach us a wondrous thing that when we study about the structure of the Beis HaMikdash and when we are involved in learning about all its details, Hashem says, I consider it as if you are actually being occupied with the actual building of the Beis HaMikdash. And our sages indicate that when we study about the Beis HaMikdash and all its many details, it shows that the Beis HaMikdash has never really been destroyed. But this is talking specifically about studying the laws and rules and details of the actual Beis HaMikdash of the temple that was standing in Yerushalayim, it, a mitzvah to build it for the future, even though we don't have it right now. But the Mishkan was a command in the Torah, but it was a command only to the Yidin who were in the Midbar, in Moshe Rabbeinu's time. It was not something that was meant for us to build in the future. So perhaps we could answer this by explaining that when it says in our Parsha, that Hashem says they should give for me a gift and then they should make for me a sanctuary where I will dwell. This is connected indeed to the building of the Beis HaMikdash, but perhaps this is a command for all the future generations regarding the house of God, regarding the Beis HaMikdash. Maybe we are supposed to be learning this regarding all the future Batei Mikdash, all the future temples that we will have, also including the Beis HaMikdash of the future. Because we really do learn the, some of the laws of the Beis HaMikdash from the command to build the Mishkan. And in addition to this, the forms and shapes, the dimensions of the length and the width of the Beis HaMikdash differed from those in the Mishkan, but the basic aspects of the Beis HaMikdash were similar to the Mishkan, as the Rambam himself indicates when he discusses the laws of building the Beis HaMikdash, and, the Ram, and we can therefore say, so if we learn about the laws that related to the donations that the Jewish people gave from their very hearts of their own volition to the building of the Mishkan, maybe we apply this also to the Beis HaMikdash, because we know that when it comes to build the Beis HaMikdash, we also learn a law in the Rambam that when the Beis HaMikdash will be built, everybody is in, uh, it's imperative rather, everybody is mandated to actually help build it, to help support it. And this is the same for men and women who would have to contribute of their money and of their time. So according to this, it makes sense to say that when we study about the details of the building of the Mishkan, it's just as it's important for the Beis HaMikdash, and it actually helps to build the Beis HaMikdash in the proper manner. And more than this, we can also say, the Rebbe says, if we want to look at it from an interview, that practically speaking, this is exactly the way it was. 
that first we built a Beis HaMikdash that was temporary because we had not yet arrived in Eretz Yisrael, as the Pesach says later, when you arrive and you're comfortable and you're settled. And after that, we built the Beis HaMikdash that was supposed to remain for all the generations. So from here we learn something about the system of the actual building of a house for Hashem. It falls directly from the fact that there is a system to the actual mannerisms of building and fulfilling the mitzvah of building the Beis HaMikdash. We go from what's lighter to what's more difficult, from what's easier to what's more hard. First, we have a Mishkan, which is a temporary dwelling. It's not our lot. It's not our inheritance in a set place for all time. And after that time passes, we will also have a Bayis Kavua, a set established permanent home, which will stay forever in Yerushalayim. And for me, we would understand that learning about the building of the Beis Hamikdash, that it should be considered as if we are learning as if we are actually building it. It's not only enough to learn about the building of the Beis HaMikdash itself, which we learn in the Psukim when it is built and in other Psukim, but we have to study it from the very beginning. We initiate the study from the building of the Mishkan, even if the details were not necessarily all in the Beis HaMikdash. And then, if we do that, we continue. And that leads to the point where Hashem will consider it as if we are actually building the Beis HaMikdash itself. But the Rebbe says it's not really sufficient to say this. Why? Because Torah is eternal. Anything in Torah, everything in Torah is meant to be forever. And just like practically speaking, there was a period of time where the Mishkan stood on its own. And when we built this Mishkan, even though it was temporary, by building it, we fulfilled one of the mitzvahs in the Torah. The Torah says in the beginning of our parsha, the Asuli Mikdash, they should make a Mikdash for me. So here we have to say that this Mikdash which they make for me, this mitzvah, is eternal. Because obviously there must be a spiritual way that the Mishkan continues to exist for all time. So what does this mean? What is really this great idea that's expressed in the Mishkan that's for all time. The Mishkan did not stand for all time, as we just said at length. It was only kind of a prototype maybe for the Beis HaMikdash, and it was not meant to last. And then the Rebbe tells us the explanation of this. When we talk about the fact that the Shechina, that the Divine Presence will dwell in this Mishkan, we have various opinions amongst our sages, what does it mean that the Shechina comes down to dwell right here in our midst? According to one opinion, the first, when the Shechina came down to dwell in our midst, it was at the time of the giving of the Torah. What happened then? So we are all familiar, hopefully, with what our sages teach us, that when Hashem made the world, there was a complete division between the lower and the higher and the lower were meant to remain lower, and the higher went to remain higher, and there was no way that the lower would turn into higher, and the higher would come down to earth until the time when Hashem gave the Torah, where Hashem was the first one, so to speak, indicated in the post before the Torah was given, Vayered Hashem al-Harsinai, 
Hashem literally descended upon the mountain of Sinai, and then Hashem said to Moshe, Alei el Hashem, you alight, you come up to Hashem. Another saying of the sages goes like this, when did the Shekhinah come to dwell on this earth? The day the Mishkan was set up. So we have here two very interesting opinions that differ in how they express themselves. One says that the Shekhinah came to dwell when Hashem descended to Harsinai when the Torah was given. The other, Chachamim teach, that when did the Shekhinah come to dwell on this earth? The day that the Mishkan was set up. So these seem to differ from each other. But really, it's not really a difference of opinion between the sages who say the first thought and those who say the second thought. Rather, what are we saying here when we say that the Shekhinah came to dwell at the time that the Torah was given, it came down to earth, and Hashem says, I am the first one, and then Hashem comes down to her Sinai, so what happened here? It was something that was initiated above by Hashem himself. And therefore, when God came down to Harsinai, if we go back to the Psukim in Parshas Yisro, where we read the events that preceded Matan Torah, we learned that when Hashem was coming down on the mountain, the Jewish people were warned that nobody dare touch the mountain. If they touch the mountain, they will be severely punished and they will die. Because the Kedusha was at Harsinai, but it didn't penetrate any further. And only when the shofar would be blown, the Torah says, which would indicate that the Shekhinah has departed, then the Jewish people can come up. In other words, Harsinai was not really transformed by the fact that Hashem came down, because when Hashem was there, they couldn't approach. And when the Shekhinah came up, they could. So Harsinai still remained whole, it still remained a matter that's related to this world, not to the higher worlds, not a matter of place, an idea. But when the Shekhinah came down to the Mishkan, as the Pasuk says, what will make it come down when Hashem choose to dwell there after they fulfill the command of the Asuli Mikdash? They will, the Jewish people themselves will make and build this Mishkan. As the Torah indicates, therefore, all the details of the actual structure and of all the vessels and things that were in it, the Asu, they will make it. Or as the other post says, you will make it. And similar verses which indicate that the Mishkan came to be a place that could contain the Shekhinah as a result of what the Jewish people themselves, the mortal human beings, did with their own hands did with their own possessions and because they did it on their own with their own physical and material strengths and abilities the holiness that came down into that mishkan was meant to establish itself there in the actual physicality of the materials that were put into the mishkan and all the elements that composed it according to the teachings of Hasidus, it can be explained like this the dwelling of the Shekhinah at the time of the giving of the Torah was something that came down from above. As we said, the Pasuk says, Hashem descended to our Sinai. And being that the purpose of the higher ones, the Elyonim, the supernal, coming down to the lower, 
is really, what is the purpose of it? Why would Hashem come down to Harsinai? Why would the higher levels come down to the lower ones only for the purpose of enabling the lower ones to rise up to the higher ones? The whole purpose of Hashem coming down was to transform this lowly world to a dwelling place for Hashem himself. That way, the Tachtonim become a dwelling place for Hashem. And therefore, we find that when Hashem started to speak the Ten Commandments, it affected, they reached all four corners of the world, it tells us, from the heaven to the earth. So in other words, when Hashem said, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God, the entire world was expressing the fact that Anochi Hashem Elokecha, it literally screamed back from every single element that was in this physical world. However, the complete fulfillment of this goal, the total fulfillment of this goal, that the Tachtonim, that the lower, should turn into something higher, should turn into a place where God has said, where God has himself can dwell, not only because he wants it and he makes it possible to dwell there, but it really can only result, Hashem wants it should result when we down here below use our means to create something that Hashem will desire and Hashem wants. And this is something very novel. This is something very extraordinary about the Mishkan that did not happen at the time the Torah was given because the Shachanti V'socham that remained in the world was only a result of the Mishkan that the Jewish people created for Hashem according to the guidelines that we learn in Parsha Struma. And now we could really understand why the words of Hashem that the Jewish people should take a Truma, should take from what they have and set it aside for me, why does that come even before the command of the building of the Mishkan? Because the only way the Mishkan could contain Hashem, that Hashem would want to dwell in it, it should be as holy as Shamayim will only come about through the work, through the avodah, through the service that the Jewish people themselves will do by doing the truma. If there is no truma, there is no mishkan because for there to be a permanent presence of Hashem and a dwelling here on earth, it can only come from the work of the Jewish people. So now we'll have to understand what really happens lemata when the Shekhinah comes down. What really happens when we do this truma? So let's go back to the beginning. Pasuk in our parsha. What do we learn? Hashem tells Moshe to tell the Yidin, Ve'yikhu li truma. They should take for me a truma. And Rashi translates, what does the word truma mean? And Rashi says two things. The first thing Rashi says is a separation. Half Russia. They should separate from what is theirs for the purpose of this Mishka. So truma is milashon litrom, to donate, to give of yourself some, from something that's yours. And the second translation Rashi brings is lashon harama, a lashon of lifting something up, of, ele- of elevating something. Even though separating from yourself and elevating are essentially two different things, nonetheless, they are intertwined because what are we talking about here? The world contains many things, gold, silver, and all kinds of wonderful things. 
And when a person decides to set this aside for Hashem, what happens? When we say that we're setting it aside, we are also expressing the manner in which it will be elevated. Because shua, meaning a separation, emphasizes not that a person ceases to exist or gives himself up for Hashem. That's not what we're asking for. Truma means you have possessions and you separate, you set aside some of those possessions for the purpose of Hashem. So you are actually elevating part of your very own possessions to be there for the sake of Hashem. And now this expresses the difference between the two ways that the Shekhinah came to dwell. If the Shekhinah comes from above, like by Matan Torah, so when Hashem came down to Har Sinai, the entire world felt it. There wasn't a part of the world that didn't feel it. Then it went away. But the kind of Shekhinah that comes about through the means of what we mortal Yidin, mortal human beings rather do on this earth, this depends on who we are and what we do. As we know, each person has to give truma according to the volition of his own heart. So how does this work? So a person remains a person and the silver remains silver and the earth remains earth and the wood remains wood and the skins remain skins. All these things used for the Mishkan, they are not annihilated or they are not extinguished or they do not disappear because of godliness, rather, they are not destroyed, rather, the Jew, when he is fulfilling his service to Hashem, separates a part of them, not all of it, we were not told to take everything we have and give it to the Mishkan, we were told to take, separate one part of our belongings, and lift it up for Hashem, and a person does this, and then the person grows and rises from level to level, then he will follow and dedicate a better part, and then he will follow and dedicate a better part, and this way, in steps, in levels, with the system, ultimately, the whole world will become dedicated to Hashem by means of what each individual decides to separate from his own possessions, from his own gifts, and give it away to Hashem. And this is not only related to the Seder, to the system, to the order of the way we elevate and refine the world, but it also expresses a manner in which the Shekhinah can dwell. Because if the Shekhinah comes down from above, it causes a bitl, it causes a nullification of the very existence of physicality. Because we find that the Shekhinah does not allow for something that's outside of godliness. As we know by the very story of Matan Torah, the very famous Medrash from Medrash Rabbah, that every child learns that when Hashem gave the Torah, the birds did not chirp, and the animals did not make their sounds, and everything sort of ceased to exist for those moments. But the kind of bitl of the world that results from Shekhinah that comes down, that is caused by the work of human hands, of a human being, especially when the human being sets aside something of his own self and lifts it up for Hashem, he doesn't destroy the thing he's lifting up. The gold is still gold. The talent is still talent. 
it doesn't negate his being because a person cannot really negate his being. Then he won't be a person anymore. But in other words, what we're saying here in the Rebbe's words to summarize this thought, when the Torah was given, the Tachton, the physical world, was sort of bottled to Hashem. At that point, it really didn't exist and didn't function as a world. But when we build the Mishkan, that's not what we're trying to accomplish, not to eliminate what exists in the physical and material world, but rather to refine it, to purify it, to elevate it, and to bring out the light in it. So now we're going to go back to the beginning and begin to understand what really is the novel lesson of this parsha that we don't learn anywhere else. What is this truma that is so important for us? It introduces the parsha and it's mentioned even before the fact that a Mishkan will be built, which we said all along was really the main theme of the parsha. So now the Rebbe tells us, based on what we said until now, the actual reason for the Torah to give us all the details of all the many items that were brought by the Jewish people to construct this Mishkan. What was the reason for it? Because when a person does the service of Hashem, transforming the physical world for a divine dwelling place, each item that is used for the building of the Mishkan is different from every other item and each thing has its own way that it becomes elevated. Each, each item is a different category, both regarding in the act of how a person separates it from himself and donates it and how it becomes elevated and what it lifts up. Now we can understand why the Torah precedes the whole story of the building of the Mishkan by the command of taking Truma for him and why the Parsha is called Truma because the whole novelty of this Parsha is the purpose of a Dira B'Tachtonim in the building of a Mishkan. The essence of the Parsha is that Hashem wants us to have a dwelling place for him down on this earth. And this he wants should be done by the building of the Mishkan. And this building of the Mishkan he wants should be done al pe'ulas ha'adam, not with angels, not with godly miracles, but every yid with his own abilities, with his or her own hands has to do it in a manner where we start with a little bit and then we go to more. We start with things that are easier and then we go to things that are more complex. We do hafrosha, we give of ourselves and then we lift it up to a higher purpose. Step by step, the gold, the silver, the diamonds, the skins, the stones, the wood or whatever it is that we have to give. One can count 13 items, some say there were 15 items, but each of these was different and they're mentioned in the Torah in a particular order. And that all results in the creation of a mikdash, a holy place that Hashem chooses to dwell in in a revealed way, more so than in any other place on earth. And this actually helps to fulfill the total purpose for why the world was created in the first place. And this is what Truma is. We bring down the Shekhinah, 
by doing what we just mentioned in the way we just mentioned. And this follows after the Shekhinah came down at the time of Matan Torah. So Hashem initiated the process by coming down, by the first expression of godliness coming down into the world. And only then are we able to do our task of building the Mishkan and utilizing this world into which Hashem came down so it stays holy and we see the godliness in everything forever. And now we could really understand why the Parsha is called Truma because the perfection and the great merit of all the Trumos that the Jewish people give throughout our Jewish history because we have many other places in the Torah as we said where we speak about different kinds of Truma through all of these giving of things that Hashem wants us to donate in different situations and different causes, this is what will bring about an actual coming down of the Shekhinah through the work of the Yid. And now that we understand this, we can try to explain that the Mishkan had a merit in itself not only as something that was temporary and meant to be a preparation for the base Hamikdash. In other words, the Mishkan was not, as we thought at first glance, a temporary structure for a specific time. And then we don't need it anymore. It was there just to help us prepare for the glorious time when we would finally be settled in our own land and be able to build our own base Hamikdash. But the Mishkan is really an eternal thing since we learn that the entire Torah is eternal, so everything in it is eternal. So let's go back to where we came from to review this and then to understand it the best way we can. Avoda begins at the bottom. First, we have to give of ourselves. And after that, and of course this happens rather after Hashem came down with the Shekhinah at Har Sinai, but then the Shekhinah went away and we couldn't really feel it in a revealed way. But notice, when did the Shekhinah come down in a manner that it would remain in the Mishkan, not in the Beis HaMikdosh? The Mishkan had the special merit that the Shekhinah came down. Let's think about this Mishkan. It was not in Yerushalayim. It was not in Eretz Yisrael. It was in the Midbar. It was in the desert, in the wilderness. What is the inner spiritual meaning of wilderness, of Midbar? So, if we look into Hasidus, we see the explanations of the Psukim. What is a Midbar? We learn in the Navi that a Midbar is a place where there is nothing. Lo yashav adam sham. Nobody's there. There's no revelation of any kind of godliness. There's no kind of godliness that's yashav, that settles there. If we're talking about a big city where there are settlements and there are people and there is life, there we can have manifestation of godliness. But the Navi tells us that the Midbar is a place where there is absolutely nothing, so there's no revelation of godliness. And this is the general difference between the Mishkan in the Midbar and the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. The Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim was built after the Yidden finally came into the land. They came to a place after all their wars. 
they finally settled. It was a place of menucha, a place of tranquility, a place of nachala, a place of inheriting our lot. And it was after we left the Midbar and only after we came to a place that was a place of Yishuv Ne'adam, a place where people will sit and settle. And therefore it was built in Eretz Yisrael, a very special place about which the Torah tells us that constantly Hashem's eyes are over this land from the beginning of the year until the end of the year. Every single day Hashem watches in a special way over Eretz Yisrael. That's where the Beis HaMikdash was. And we're in Eretz Yisrael, the most settled of all places, so to speak. The most glorious of all places. Where was this Beis HaMikdash? In Yerushalayim. What's Yerushalayim? We all know that the word Yerushalayim is from the two words, Yerushalayim, a place where fear of God, awe of God. Yeras Hashem is Bishlamus. It's complete. It's perfect. And where in Yerushalayim was it? It was in the place that we know that when Yaakov discovered that he had fallen asleep there, he said, this is Shar HaShamayim. This is the gateway to heaven. So the actual day, Samikdash, which is made from physical matter, uh, is actually a result of the work of the person. We did build the Beis HaMikdash, but notice it was built in the place that Hashem chose. The Pesach says the land, the place where Hashem was bocher, where Hashem chose his Shechina to dwell and transformed that place into a vessel for manifesting godliness. But in the Midbar, before we came to the land, the Midbar wasn't the place Hashem chose as his dwelling place. It's not a place of Yishuv Adam. People aren't there. That means godliness. It's a mushal for godliness, a metaphor. Godliness doesn't reveal itself there. And it's not really a place that's worthy of being a vessel to which godliness gets channeled. On the contrary, it's called Midbar Ha'amim in the Navi Yecheskel, the wilderness of the nations, which has in it and we learn in Chumash, the Midbar is described as a place of Nachash, Saraf, Akrav, a place of snakes, scorpions, and a thirst where there is no water in such a place. That's where Hashem wanted the Mishkan to be made, transforming even the Midbar into a place of godliness. And this can only happen, not because Hashem chooses to make it that way, but Hashem wants it to happen through the actual avoda of the person himself, of the yidn themselves, how? By each one offering to set aside a small portion of what's theirs for a higher cause. And it's interesting to see that it's specifically that this mikdash, which was in the midbar, we learn this lesson that only in this Mikdash. The Rambam calls it the Mikdash that was in the Midbar when he discusses the laws of the building base on Mikdash. And he refers to the actual Mishkan as the Mikdash uh, in the Midbar, emphasizing that it was in a place where there really were no godly revelations and nothing else on any level. We learned that from here we get the strength to actually transform the world even when we are in Golos, which is representative of this Midbar, where we don't necessarily see revealed light of Elokos, where there is no water, where there is no spiritual life the way it should be, 
as we say, David HaMelech says it until also Seinu Lo Ra'inu. We don't see the wonders, we don't see the miracles, we don't know what's going on with us in the Midbar Ha'amim, in the place of the nations, not a place of God where we are. It's a place of darkness, not a place of revelation. It's a place of a double darkness and a quadruple darkness. But here we learn that even in such a place, we have the ability to create, to carve out a Mishkan for Hashem, where Hashem will say, I will dwell in it, I will dwell in them. So this leads us to the conclusion of the Sikha. Based on everything we learned, we can take out the following. Being that the dwelling of the Shekhinah and the Beis HaMikdash, unlike Matan Torah, was a result of the work of the individual person, this is much more revealed in the discussion, specifically in the Mishkan that was in the Midbar. And here we also learn that this is the most important basic principle of the base Hamikdash itself. And that's why if we look from an inner point of view, the Rambam himself is so meticulous with every word in his book of Halacha. And when the Rambam speaks about the Mishkan, he calls it the Mikdash, the sanctuary in the desert, in the wilderness. And then he says, Hakol Chayovim Livnos, every single Yid is obligated to build and to support Ba'atman, each one by himself, from himself, from herself, with their money, men and women have to build the base Hamikdash like they built the Mikdash in the Midbar. That's what we're learning in Parshas Truma. Even though uh, the Rambam, when he talks about the Mishkan and earlier, he doesn't call it uh, with that word Mikdash Hamidbar. He talks about the Mikdash, but here he emphasizes the Mikdash in the Midbar. In other words, to conclude, the vote of a person and a manner of truma specifically when it comes to build a base on Mikdash, giving of oneself, giving of one's money, giving of one's possession, this flows, this idea that we will do later comes from what we do in what we had to do in the Midbar, in a place where there was no life, Jewish life, in a place where there was no revelation of godliness, in a desolate, forsaken place. Such a place which doesn't seem to have the capacity to ever reveal any kind of godliness, this is the very place where the Mishkan would be built through the giving of the self and of the possessions of the Yidden in the Midbar. And this teaches us a lesson for each one of us in our own very spiritual avoda, no matter what time period it is that we are living in. Sometimes we may feel, each one of us, that we are in a situation of being like a midbar. We feel that there is no godliness. We don't see the holiness. We don't see the elokus. And when we get into this kind of mood, this kind of feeling, we can become very, very discouraged. A terrible thing. So now, when we learn this, we are told should not get discouraged at all. We should never despair because there is a Migdash in the Midbar. The Rambam calls the Mishkan the Migdash in the Midbar. And on the contrary, the command 
where Hashem says, make for me a Migdash and I will dwell in it, or I will dwell in them, this actually was initiated, this actually started, and this actually was fulfilled in a real concrete way in the Mishkan that the Jewish people created and built when they actually found themselves in a Midbar, in a desolate and seemingly forsaken place. And the ultimate conclusion of the Sicha, the ultimate bracha that comes with it, the Rebbe says that when a Yid builds a Mishkan, specifically when he finds himself in a spiritual Midbar, what does this cause? It doesn't only bring light, it doesn't only bring glory, but it causes what Shleim HaMelech calls Yisron HaArmin HaChoshech. The advantage of the light that one can truly appreciate only after one has experienced true darkness. And this leads Ayid to the level of the Midbar of Kedusha, a level of Kedusha that is so high, it is higher than any kind of revelation. So therefore it's called the Midbar of Kedusha. It's like a desolation of Kedusha. There is nothing that comes to this light that Ayid can create by doing what he and she has to, according to what Hashem wants, by dedicating of everything we have within us and everything we have without us to the higher purpose, which ultimately, of course, we will see fully brought to fruition with the coming of Mashiach, Ben Heirav Amen. Thank you.